Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Open Banking Expo Unplugged. I'm Adam Cox, the co-founder of Open Banking Expo and it's great to have you on board for the next 40 minutes or so. Today we turn our attention back to Canada and the ongoing shift towards consumer-directed finance with murmurings that the analysis and review from the next phase of the open banking consultation is due out from the minister's office soon, we're delighted to welcome back Abhishek Sinha, who leads the open banking strategy at our partner EY. And joining him on today's show is Rami Thabet, the Vice President of Digital Products at RBC. And today's session will be expertly hosted by Parna Sabet stevenson who is a partner and co-head of the fintech practice at Gowling WLG. Welcome all, and I'll hand over to Parna to carry on the conversation. Thank you, Adam. I'm delighted to be joined here today by Rami Thabat of RBC and Abhishek Sena of EY. Good morning, and thank you both for taking the time to join me today. Good morning, Parna. Morning, Parna. But first, some background to our discussion. We've been on a path towards open banking for quite some time now in Canada. In its budget 2018, the Canadian government announced its intent to undertake a review of the merits of open banking. Shortly after, the Minister of Finance appointed an advisory committee on open banking to guide this review. Back in November and December of last year, the advisory committee conducted the second round of its consultation with industry stakeholders, and we're expecting the report any day. But before we go any further, I'd like to invite our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves and their respective roles. Abhishek? Thank you, Parna. Um, I am a partner at EY, uh, based out of Toronto in Canada, and um, I lead our banking technology practice here. And one of the most important aspects um, in the practice is looking forward to the changes that are happening across the industry. And open banking, or consumer-directed finance, as it's known in Canada, um, is one of those things which is quite seismic in its impact uh, for financial services and banking in particular. So it's a topic which is really close to my heart. I think uh, it's it's fantastic that we're making progress on this, and I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for that, and thank you for being with us. Rami? Uh, thank you, Parna. My name is Rami Thabet. I'm the Vice President of Digital Products at the Royal Bank of Canada. And with a number of amazing colleagues, we're entrusted with building amazing digital products for our clients and consumers to interact with on a daily basis. And part of my remand is representing RBC on the open banking dimensions uh, that are happening in Canada. Uh, our mission statement is to build the most digitally enabled relationship bank and supporting our value props in the industry. Uh, uh, for a digitally enabled relationship for RBC. Thank you, Lami. Look forward to hearing all about that. Gentlemen, let's get to it. Made in Canada, there are aspects of the open banking movement in Canada that's quite unique to us. In fact, we prefer to call it consumer-directed finance. And yet, there are aspects that are similar to other jurisdictions. Can you touch on some of these aspects? Abhishek? Thank you, Parna. Um, I think there are a few diff- a few things that are quite different um, in Canada versus some of the other jurisdictions where open banking is probably a little bit more advanced. And the first thing in Canada which is quite different is the consumer trust in our banking system 
is very, very high. And this trust has been built over decades of um, the banking industry providing safe, secure services to the Canadian consumer. We got through the 2007-2008 crisis quite a bit in better shape than than most of the other um, countries. And because of that, the the purpose why um, we want to pursue open banking and, and our motivations in Canada are a little bit different from the motivations in Australia, for example, or the UK or, or other jurisdictions. Where we are quite similar in, to other jurisdictions is really around uh, the consumer rights piece. Um, I think we are right there with you know any other jurisdiction in the world in terms of um, identifying the sovereignty of the data from a consumer standpoint, uh, the assertion of on data ownership for the consumers. Um, and the second thing is around our goals of promoting innovation and competitiveness in the market. I think in, in those sense, in those two sort of aspects, we're quite similar to a number of other jurisdictions. And because where we're coming from and what we're trying to do, our view and the way we think open banking should unfold in Canada is slightly different from the views, the drivers, the motivations of how it's unfolding in other parts of the world. Rami? Thank you, Parnell. Such an important question. And uh, to pick up where Abhishek left off, um, Canada is different, and and that's okay. Um, how open banking has rolled out globally has been unique to that market. In the UK and Australia, for example, open banking was mandated largely due to a significant drop in consumer confidence and an erosion of trust in domestic institutions. While other evolved geographies such as Singapore, it was very much based in competitiveness and building a smart economy, and the system was heavily industry-driven, but with a strong collaboration between government and fintechs. I think it's important that as we proceed forward, we're developing a system that's made for Canada, but that is grounded in safety and soundness. And really, Canada is unique. And I'll draw out some some uniquenesses. Um, we have a plural government framework of federal and provincial regulators that makes Canada a unique market to consider. So the federal government has authority over banks, loan companies, trusts, and insurance companies, and financial institutions such as credit unions and financial services such as securities fall within provincial and territorial jurisdictions. Consumer protections are generally the application of the, of the provincial jurisdiction. And meanwhile, the federal financial sector framework is a responsibility of the Minister of Finance. So in conclusion, you know, in, in sort of summary, as a, as a set of data points, Canada is unique. It is not Australia. It is not the UK. And nor is it Singapore. Uh, and we should not be in a rush to employ a shift and lift, but really consider those differences and, and create a, a made-for-Canada solution. Um, a couple of additional points. Um, <clears throat> I would note that we do plan to learn from international best practices, technology solutions, and standards. Being one of the uh, third or fourth or fifth countries at this gives us a uh, privileged position to take those learnings and really employ them in a made-for-Canada solution. But it does mean that we have a different starting point that we've seen in other jurisdictions, and we should not shy away from that responsibility to take a very robust and thoughtful approach to making sure that there's a solution that does work for Canada. 
lastly, the banks in Canada do have a strong history of trusted relationships. Um, we have the highest NPS of all countries globally in, in our domestic institutions. That's as of some of the most recent uh, surveys, pre-COVID and post-COVID. And trust is built not just about the ability to provide the services and solutions that meet the needs, but also the protection that the clients are offered when things do go wrong. And that is something that is unique about Canada's financial system, that banks are here when things do go bump in the night. We have a long history of collaborating with government. <clears throat> as evidenced through the pandemic and the relief programs that were rolled out, such as SIBA and the SERP program. And I do believe we have the foundational elements to have a collaborative approach between industry and government towards a made-for-Canada solution. And Abhishek touched on the concept of consumer rights. At the end of 2020, the Government of Canada introduced the bill, the Digital Charter Implementation Act 2020, to establish a new privacy law for the private sector, the Consumer Privacy Protection Act. Tell us about the implication of this for consumer-directed finance, Abhishek. Yeah, this, this this piece of legislation was actually long coming. <laughs> Bill C-11, as it's called, it, it's a very comprehensive uh, piece of legislation which has very far-reaching implications across all sectors, not just financial services. And yes, there is a significant implication on consumer-directed finance or open banking as a result of this. If we look at the 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 bill, there's really three tenants to the bill. The first tenant of the bill is really around individual rights. What we introduce are things like enhanced data subject rights around access, the mobility of the data, deletion, the ability to share or transfer data at the consumer's request, and and the ability to give the consumer's um, rights to demand that their information be destroyed. The right of erasure, uh, erasure, which um, which was quite a topic of conversation just before GDPR got introduced um, uh, in, in Europe. Um, there's meaningful consent in there and, and the, the operative word being meaningful. So consent will be required in, in simplified, plain language, ensuring that individuals can fully understand what they are consenting to. Um, Individuals will have rights to demand explanations on any automated decisions where uh, organizations may be using predictive analytics uh, to help individuals understand how their personal information was used to arrive at that decision. And, and, you know, if, if you think about it, there's a lot there uh, in terms of uh, the rights of the individual. The second tenant is around organizational responsibilities. So, so the organizations who are using this data. We've got uh, the need to put in place an explicit privacy management program which sets out and maintains data protection, privacy policies, procedures, and it's accessible to the privacy commissioner. Um, you know, the same protection from service providers as well. In an event where an organization transfers personal information to a service provider, they must ensure by contract that substantially similar protection is given to the personal information. And that 
I'm sure Rami is going to have a very strong view on that because the banks have been stewards of people's personal information. And when there is a need, for example, in open banking to share that information with third parties, there is an onus on the banks to make sure that the third parties with whom they're sharing the information, they take equally reasonable care and protection for that uh, personal information. Um, there's uh, uh, there are provisions around certification programs to create, you know, an accredited third-party regime um, to to make sure that those uh, those provisions are protected. Um, the use of personal information without the subject's knowledge or consent um, is is also clearly called out and uh, as as something that's going to be offside and will be prohibited to identify an individual using even de-identified information. So the reverse engineering and sort of trying to uh, pinpoint who that individual is through, uh, through analytics uh, is, is also something that, uh, that's going to be covered. And, and the last point, which is the third tenant, uh, is around enforcement. And that's quite uh, important because, because Till now, our Privacy Commissioner's Office did not have uh, strong enough enforcement powers to be able to effectively um, enforce a number of obligations under the current privacy law, known as PIPEDA. Uh, So now we're looking at a regime where there could be increased penalties, um, up to 3 to 5% of global revenue of organizations, which is very, very meaningful. Uh, there's under enforcement, you can have a private right to action, which allows uh, individuals to claim damages for loss or injury. Um, and it also establishes tribunal for appeals for, uh, under uh, the CPPA. So if you look at all of these three sort of pillars, the individual rights, the responsibilities of organizations and the enforcement powers, it's a complete overhaul. And it sort of brings together some of the best sort of practices and learnings from, you know, the GDPR implementation in, in Europe or the CDR, the consumer data rights uh, uh, movement in Australia and elsewhere. Um, and, you know, we are in this process of deliberation right now in Canada where we're sort of trying to adjust the contours of along these three dimensions to get to uh, what, what Rami sort of um, alluded to as a made-in-Canada solution. And and this will be the foundation for uh, consumer data rights going forward. Thank you for that great summary. Abhishek mentioned Rami's strong views on the point. Rami, do you want to share some of those with us? Uh, absolutely. So um, I, I believe they're not going to be strong, necessarily fully strong points. They're just points of view <laughs> based on our role. Uh, as large financial institutions and domestically uh, large institutions in the banking system is that we do have a stewardship role. Our role is fundamentally different. Um, clients and the government entrust us with certain obligations and we need to fulfill those obligations. Um, a, um, a not well-considered quick uh, remedy to a knee-jerk reaction uh, is not always the soundest way of implementing a, a thoughtful approach to move forward. Abhishek uh, hit the point on the head um, in his summary. Bill C-11 was long coming. 
It was a very uh, thoughtful piece of work that engaged many stakeholders in the industry, financial services and non-financial services players. And there was significant consultation in the process and the implications of the details of C11 are still being uh, worked out and in the process. Uh, That has meant that this is a framework that is being looked forward to uh, as it will introduce significant protections for industry and most importantly for consumers and Canadians. I think we will look in retrospect on Bill C-11 um, and, and reflect on the consequences of Cambridge Analytica and look at it as probably one of the most significant moves the Canadian industry has made. We're still reviewing and determining the specific implications will be of Bill C-11. As you can imagine, it impacts us in a, in a fairly substantial way, even beyond open banking, just our day-to-day operations and our obligation as uh, stewards of consumer data. Uh, I think it highlights also some nuances of the system, that collaboration is required between finance and ICED and the various governmental parties that exist across our patchwork in the country to ensure that regulations do not overlap and create a bureaucratic burden on financial institutions, fintechs, and the consumers alike. Um, That has to be netted out before we really proceed forward. So we see this particular component as a significant prerequisite uh, for a robust movement forward on open banking. So it has come with a lot of welcome from us because we do feel that it is a significant pillar for a robust, stable view about how we proceed forward on open banking. Uh, It would need to be reflected in the open bank consultations um, and would be thought through in terms of what has already been addressed as part of Spill C11 and what will need to be addressed in any subsequent moves on open banking. On that, I would note that Canada already has a strong regulatory framework when it comes to privacy, data sharing, financial crime, and other areas. This framework does underpin the open banking system uh, or any movement towards that. We believe as the digital technologies and innovations continue to reshape Canada, bringing privacy and this uh, data privacy legislation into the modern digital age is going to be a priority for the entire economy. It's a necessary step for a meaningful move on open banking. So I do, I think we believe that this is really one of the more positive uh, dimensions that we've moved forward with. There's still a lot of detail that will need to be flushed out and and worked through um, to see how it will shape itself in the coming future. An industry-led approach to consumer-directed finance. Has this been the Canadian mantra and what exactly does it mean? Abhishek? Yeah, um, the Canadian financial services reg- regulatory regime, as Ms. Parna, you'd know quite well, is it's a principles-based regime. What that means is that our regulators are quite focused on setting out policy objectives and outcomes for most part. What it also means is the industry has an important role to play in defining the implementation of some of these objectives. And this balance of roles and responsibilities has been working quite well for us uh, in establishing efficient business models that are pragmatic and they provide a lot of stability. Um, It has helped us through tough times like the last financial crisis, as we said. Um, And I think the consumer-directed finance movement in Canada is likely to take the same path, and it is taking in a lot of ways the same path, where the government 
is putting in place uh, in place the pieces around the regulatory and legal framework, like Bill C-11, and the industry develops the implementation mechanics, like the standards, the data exchange um, technical standards, um, the uh, program around how do you manage third-party risk, or what the accreditation model needs to look like. Uh, obviously, implementation has a lot of complexity to it, um, there's a lot of very specific things that need to be managed. And in most cases, the government probably isn't um, in the best place to define those standards, to define um, those mechanics of how third parties get into the ecosystem, how data actually gets shared, what does you know consent look like from a user experience perspective, uh, you know, how do we design uh, the processes and methodologies around, you know, revoking consent um, and, and, you know, uh, the, the entire uh, back office operations part of it. Um, and, and, you know, in, in, in our minds, that's what the industry-led approach is. Um, it's, it doesn't mean that the government doesn't have a role to play. It, it certainly does. Um, and, and I think the government is playing that role, but we need to make sure that it's balanced and we need to make sure that we clearly understand the areas where the industry has the skills, the willingness um, and, and the actions to uh, take this forward in a much more effective and efficient way. So we're talking about a hybrid model here. Absolutely. Rami, do you want to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to us, it really simply means taking an agile, responsive, uh, flexible, market-based approach to open banking, given the unique needs uh, for Canada. Uh, for clients, the industry-led approach really places them at the center of everything. It's not really about the, the market players. It's not about the data exchange. It's not about the aggregators, the fintechs, the banks. It really places the consumer at the center of the discussion. Uh, for industry partners, it's going to promote openness, innovation, competitiveness, while providing consistent principles and practices amongst our participants who are governed under different regulatory regimes, which really underscores why an industry solution is one of the most practical paths forward uh, for a Canadian landscape. Um, Canada has been successful with this approach. Uh, no matter what the regime of the participants, they willingly sign up without being mandated to do so. And, and therefore, changes that are made as the market evolves and the opportunities ebb and flow in the market. And we have many significant experiences over decades in the banking system and other sectors in Canada where this has come uh, to life quite successfully. We'd also want the industry solutions to be inclusive across a range of factors factors, including uh, ensuring that choice, uh, accessibility, including underserved Canadians and access are built into the product design and experience from the get-go. Um, you know, we, we exist in the local communities all across Canada through the width and breadth of the Canadian landscape. And so we see the variances of needs that Canadians have. And we do believe in something that really factors in all of those needs um, and doesn't just factor in, let's say, the domestic needs of of a highly urbanized market or a specific segment of the market. Uh, we do, however, agree that 
with the government on some core principles and with the industry on some core principles, there is a need for a common API and for common standards to be built for the Canadian market so that we can interoperate and be inclusive to the broader market participants, many of which are international players. Uh, consumers are in control of the data in a manner that is consistent with the principles outlined in Bill C-11 and the Digital Charter. Consumers should be able to receive access to a wider range of useful, competitive, and innovative financial services products. And consumers should be able to have reliable, consistent access to services throughout the system. So, you know, there are many things we agree on and uh, have a strong point of departure on. Uh, already the industry has been in movement, as Abhishek mentioned earlier, and you did as well. Um, uh, there is momentum in the industry. There has been strong collaboration between FIs and non-FIs on uh, a standard, FDX, as a, uh, a standard that can proceed forward. It is uh, being used by many parties. It can be one of many, but it is a leading contender uh, and is generating substantial progress around areas like technical standards and we see similar approaches by industry to address other areas like privacy, security, and consumer protection. And we've touched on trust already, but EY has conducted some great research on whether engaging customers can actually better unlock open banking's full potential. The survey clearly validated the high level of trust consumers have in the established banks and also their willingness to share different data types. This survey also clearly highlighted consumers' expectation from a value exchange perspective. What are Canadian banks actually doing to maintain and even increase this level of trust? Rami? See, we switched it up here. I was hoping for Abhishek to answer for me. Um, <laughs> all kidding aside, um, uh, um, it, trust is built because you serve the clients and your clients in a way that meets their needs. It's as simple as that. Uh, second, uh, trust is earned when something goes wrong. It's the moments of truth. And we often at Royal Bank talk about the moments of truth and will you be there and will you, will you show up at that moment of truth? And we take great pride in always being there and showing up at that client moment of truth. So when something goes wrong and we're there to provide recourse to our clients and help keep them informed help keep them secure and help resolve their issues and help provide them with advice and meaningful, thoughtful um, advice that moves their financial needs forward. That is really where trust starts to uh, get built in a significant way and continue to be reinforced. Uh, along the way, there are additional moments where we can build trust. And that's where we are beginning to innovate in new concepts, new banking concepts, and introducing where value, where we can add additional value to our customers uh, through additional products, enhancements, capabilities, and frankly, more value out of their relationship. For some clients, it's about saving money and time. For others, it's going to be about providing better, more seamless banking experiences. And for others, it's really about providing them with the with the advice that they need to make more informed decisions to improve their lives. Uh, so we see this really as a sort of a three-pillar uh, process to get to the highest level of trust. For open banking to be successful, especially in Canada, the client needs to see and know that they will receive real value. Um, from the use cases that will be enacted um, when they provide their consent to have information shared in a safe and secure way. And that cannot be at 
their detriment or at their cost and at their security or privacy degradation. Um, I think Canadians would recoil if that was the unintended consequence of a framework that has not been well considered. Abhishek, would you like to add to that? Uh, that's um, uh, a great sort of summary, Rami, of, of things that uh, the banks are doing. Uh, I fully agree with you on, on you know the moments of truth around uh, trust and, and how that sort of enhances and, and builds that. And you know, in, in general, banks have been doing quite well on that. Um, trust, I think, is also around acting in the client's best interests. Um, even where in, in a particular case, it may be promoting, um, you know, a product or service, which uh, you may not offer yourself as, as a financial institution. And what what we're seeing right now in the marketplace, a number of uh, organizations, including RBC, are, are moving forward on is creating ecosystems, which put the customer at the center uh, tries to identify all of the value levers in terms of uh, you know what's happening in the customer's life, given the massive amounts of information the consumers have already shared with with institutions, um, and focusing on meet helping the clients meet their goals. Um, one of the important things that sort of clearly came out um, in the survey is. What do you expect? We we asked really three questions of clients, right? Question one was, what data are you willing to share and with whom? Um, question two was, under what conditions are you willing to share that data? And the third question was, what is it that you want in return for sharing that data? What What's the value exchange? And, and I think Rami pointed a number of conditions that need to be met in order for the consumers to actually share that data. And it was quite clear that the existing relationships that consumers have, whether it's with banks or it's with credit unions or uh, or any other institutions, are high trust relationships. So they will continue to and would be open to sharing more data about themselves with these organizations under the conditions of privacy and, and all the things Rami mentioned. But what what came out in terms of the value exchange, what they want from it, is they want to be treated as an individual. They want hyper-personalization. Um, what consumers don't want is to be um, be uh, one customer ID amongst millions within the bank or just uh, stratified into a broad, broad segment thing. of people that you know could be, oh, you're mass market, so you, you go get this product or you're you know, in this segment, and these are the types of products for you. Um, I think, you know, the technology exists. Uh, There's a number of, you know, additional enablers which allow um, institutions to actually reach out, interact with clients as an individual. That amount of hyper-personalization where uh, client, uh, the, the service provider, the bank, can look at me, Abhishek, and know exactly my financial situation. They know, you know, where I work. They know, you know, what kind of car I drive because, you know, I have a loan, auto loan or something. And, you know, you've got all of these things. And how do you stitch these together to have the Abhishek experience sponsored by 
whichever bank fill in the blank, right? Um, and and that I think is going to cement the trust. And if you if you step back and and look at the new players in the fintechs and what are they really trying to do? They're, they're trying to get there, right? Uh, they're trying to hyper personalize at a speed which in some cases is faster than the incumbents. Um, but you know there there are a number of incumbents who are doing as well as, if not better, in terms of being able to provide that information. And clearly, just based on the depth and of the relationship and the trust and the data that they have about clients, they can actually, they're in a position to do a much better job uh, than, than some of the challengers. It's about moving the big machine and, and making it happen. I like that, the Abishak experience. <laughs> We've already touched on some of this, but also one of the finding of your consumer preference survey is the desire of consumers to securely exercise control over their data, uh, but also who they share it with. How is the industry addressing this expectation, Rami? Absolutely, Parna. I think this whole podcast is the Abishak experience, but uh, <laughs> uh, I have to get that with Abishak. Um, one, you know, wonderful question. Um, one important way we can do this is by providing complete transparency to clients and how the data is being used, um, how it's being shared and with and uh, with whom, uh, how they can reach out for questions, concerns, and fundamentally redress and, and modifications. Um, this is all about access and control. And there is probably no more emotive topic for a consumer um, than than lack of control. Um, it's fundamentally why um, you know during uh, the high you know the high point of COVID as it started, uh, all the FIs were receiving record calls. They were receiving record client interactions, and and we were there. We were there to respond to those questions. Many of them were simply questions. Many of them were inquiries. Many of them were advice points. And I think that underpins that this is not just about bits and bytes and APIs and data points and can I have a toggle uh, that does this, but it's really about the human contact. And if we lose, you know, context with that, if we lose connectivity with that interaction, um, we can inadvertently build a system where it is not going to meet the consumer need. It is really an economics or a use case driven uh, system um, that, is dri- that is driven largely by commercial interests. Um, meanwhile, at an industry level, we do need to continue driving forward with the universal technical standard that is consent driven. That is a fundamental underpinning. We already talked a little bit about data portability, but if data portability actually becomes frictionless, do you think that we'll see a lot of switching between service providers? Abhishek? Uh, That's a very interesting question. And and I think a lot of hypotheses would say that, you know, there's, it's likely to happen that there'd be a lot of switching. But I'd point to one data point. In, In 2013, the UK introduced a new service. Um, it's called the Current Account Switching Service, CAS. And, and the idea was to simplify and speed up the process of switching and, and take the friction out. And in doing so, to address perceived barriers, maybe real in some cases, that the process itself um, uh, was the big inhibitor. It was widely expected that uh, it would lead to massive switching across all of the financial institutions, banks, building societies, and so on. The reality is in about seven years, about 6 million accounts have been switched under the scheme. 
And the scheme made it as easy as one signature you you provide to your prospective new bank or, or building society, and they could take that piece of paper and uh, go to your existing service provider and say, this individual has decided to switch over to us. Um, please give us all his you know, accounts. Please tell us every bill payment that has been set up. Please tell us every mortgage repayment, every salary payment. So all of those things which are traditionally thought of boat anchors for clients to stay with an organization, it, it took those anchors away. But I think compared to the expectation, the reality has been a little bit underwhelming. And I think in in Canada, if that were to happen, if we were to have a Canadian equivalent of the CAS, I don't think it's going to make a meaningful impact on the switching between the different service providers. And I sort of go back to the trust question here. Because Canadians have such a high degree of trust, it's unlikely that you know the the natural attrition which every organization has is going to be significantly impacted uh, by this. Now you have to really do a bad job uh, in terms of uh, you know providing customer service or being responsive uh, to clients to actually see you know a massive migration out uh, to other financial institutions. Um, I think I think that's uh, it's it's quite unlikely that's going to be massive switching. Rami, uh, thank you, Parna. Uh, I won't um, rehash what Abhishek said. I think uh, the UK use case is a is a very pertinent one. The volumes are very publicly disclosed, and uh, net switching has not been affected. Uh, another example is the uh, is the telecom industry, where uh, portability of phone numbers has um, has been enabled. And I would point to that as a use case where um, it was rushed through, and there were unintended consequences uh, that, frankly. Ended up in uh, in quite an increase in uh, in uh, impacts to Canadian consumers, but I would like to circle back on an earlier answer about earning and building trust to answer this question. Clients don't switch banks because it's easy. They switch banks because of other reasons: poor service, a series of bad experiences, and in a worst case scenario, they weren't protected or something went wrong, and institutions did not have their back and did not show up when it really mattered. That's what really instigates um, a switching use case. So wherever we can make and we seek to make it easier to bank with us, where Doida Portability is one way we can do that, make it easier to share information safely and securely. Um, but the underpinning of, I think, that question is around frictionless or around exchange um, uh, to drive uh, switching between service providers is largely going to be predicated on value received value experienced and the total client experience that a consumer is looking for. What pulls clients in is value propositions, and those are built around confidence, security, trust. You know, I appreciate there are going to be concerns about switching being more common, uh, but, you know, the underpinnings that really drive uh, a switching experience are largely value-driven or trust-driven. Uh, we have not seen them be portability-driven. It's available, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> we have not seen that phenomenon manifest itself, but we have seen the phenomenon that manifests itself is I cannot do X. That is a very key ingredient to my financial health and my financial well-being, and therefore I'm going to move to a place where I can do it. Thank you, Rami, and thank you, Avishak.
Thank you for sharing all your insights with us today. And also, I have to say that I'm very much looking forward to seeing where this Canadian open banking journey will take us. Thanks, Pana. And that's a wrap, as they say, on today's show. Thanks to Rami and to Abhishek for joining us today. And of course, huge thanks to Pana for navigating us through these open banking waters for the last 40 minutes or so. And of course, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. As a reminder, all previous podcasts can be found on Spotify and iTunes or can be streamed directly from openbankingexpo.com, where you'll also find all of the latest news, insight and deals in the world of open banking and open finance from around the globe. Also, if you'd like to appear as a guest on the Unplugged podcast or as a guest on the newly launched Open Banking Expo TV, then please do reach out. You can find me at adam.cox at openbankingexpo.com. Until next time, take care for now.